Welcome to the first Rail Talk episode of 2024. My name is Joe Bianca. I'm an ownership advisor at West Point Thoroughbreds. I realized I didn't introduce myself in the final episode of 2023. So there you go. Now you know who I am. And John, your Giants were just a little bit shittier than my Jets this year. So you know what that means. You're coming to Brooklyn to record an episode with me. It's a road show. Road show. Jonathan Green, general manager of DJ Stable. And, and Joe, just so you know how serious I am about coming to Brooklyn, um, I am going to have my staff come out in advance, clear a path, start sweeping the streets, get rid of the riffraff. Um, and and I think they're going to drop rose petals. I'm not sure. That may be a surprise. But, yeah, we're going to do a show at the end of the month from the Bianca Casa. That's right. I was going to say, pack your bulletproof vest and your handlebar mustache. Coming to Brooklyn, baby. Rail Talk is sponsored by Fasig Tipton. Shout out to Fasig for signing back up with us. We had a great year with them. We love doing the live show up at the sales grounds at Saratoga. We hope to do something similar this year, this summer, perhaps. Uh, just taking a look at the Fasig Tipton calendar, they got the Kentucky Winter Mix Sale coming up. That's February 5th and 6th in Lexington. And we talked about this last time, but the digital sales are really where to be before we get into like the big yearling sales in the, in the summer. The February digital sale is February 15th through the 20th. The March digital sale is March 7th through the 12th. April digital sale, April 4th through the 9th. And the main digital sale, May 9th through the 14th, before we get to the Mid-Atlantic May two-year-olds and training sales. Another digital sale in June. So great opportunity. Get those turnkey horses. You can nominate now. Entries close for the first digital sale on February 7th. So put those horses in now. And yeah, if you're if you're looking to buy and you're not looking to put in all the time to get a horse ready to the track, you just want them to run them in the next couple of weeks, hit them up. Facing does the digital sale better than anybody in this industry. So we have some triple crown news. First, we're going to talk about the Derby news. And then we have some big Preakness news. So we're going to do it in the order of the triple crown and just and then ignore Naira, just like the Great Stakes Committee did uh, for the Belmont. Uh, so, John, the, the purse was bumped up to $5 million for the Kentucky Derby. It was $3 million previously. Now, this is something that a lot of people in the, in the industry have been calling for. For a long time, just because it didn't seem congruous to have all these Breeders' Cup races be six million dollars and four million dollars and three million dollars and have the Derby still be three million. Honestly, it doesn't affect me at all in any way because like, you know, I don't I don't own horses that are going to run Derby. I work for a company that does, but my cut is going to be like that big if we win the Derby. It's more about the prestige. John, how does this affect owners, breeders, everybody else in the business to have this purse bump? You know, Joe, we we talked about. Um, the idea of having the Kentucky Derby and, and the Oaks, for that matter, um, increase purses. There was, you know, remember months ago on, on Twitter, there was like a little firestorm about how come the Derby's not millions more and, and then the Oaks, and it, it's the most prestigious race. And, and I remember at the time I was like, it doesn't matter because they're always over, oversubscribed anyway. Um, you know, those are the, the most important resume building uh, races for three-year-olds, uh, you know, and, and people gun for the Derby and for the Oaks. And even the fans that are out and people that are outside of the industry, they don't, if they don't know of anything else in the industry and they find out that, that I'm involved, the very first question I get is, have you ever run in the Derby? Like they don't know anything else. It's like, if somebody asked me about, about NASCAR and I would be like, did you ever race at Talladega? I didn't even know if that's really a NASCAR thing, but, but anyway, so I was, (laughs) I was very, I was like, they don't need to race the purses for those races because people are coming there anyway. It's a destination site. It's a resume builder. And, and you know, 
color me shocked. I was, I was wrong um, that, you know, and they went ahead, Churchill Downs went ahead and not only raised purses significantly for the Derby and for the Oaks, um, but also like 20 something other stake races. So they're putting in a, a shit ton amount of money into their spring um, and early summer um, stakes schedule. And, and I'm astonished because one thing you can say about Churchill Downs that they've been consistent um, over the years is that they are very, 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 you know, uh, business oriented with regard to how it affects Churchill Downs and how it affects their stock. So I'm surprised that they're actually putting money into those big races because again, they don't, they didn't really need to. Um, and, and Joe, I wanted your opinion on this. I wonder if, if it's maybe like a little bit of PR um, soothing because they did have all those breakdowns and, and, and some negative, um, uh, you know, news and, and, and PR between the breakdowns and also the fact that the turf course wasn't ready um, anywhere near when they anticipated it was. I wonder if maybe they were just kind of like, let's throw some money on this. So that way uh, people won't complain about, you know, about uh, the, the missteps that we took recently. Yeah, well, if some people made that point on Twitter, it was like there's a quote from Bill Carstangen about like this, this really, uh, you know, kind of underlines the the health and the, the buoyancy and all this of the Churchill Downs business. And people are like, uh, I seem to remember them having some problems and the business not being that healthy in the past year or so. But it is in terms of, of the bottom line, mainly because of historical horse racing, like the prize money I'm reading from the Blood Horse story, the prize money for the stake schedule increased 25%, $5.1 million total. So they're up over $25 million for the stake schedule um, from up from last year's $20.5 million. And it says last month, Churchill opened, opened a second HHR gaming parlor in Louisville, in Louisville, Kentucky, this one downtown. Um, they also had HHR at, a, at Churchill's Derby City Gaming Offsite Training Center. I have, you know, I don't get it because, like, I have literally never seen a historical horse racing machine or played one or anything, but this seems like such a gold mine. And I'm, I'm just curious, like it seems even more so than slot machines. Now, maybe that's just a Kentucky thing because, you know, there's the, all that, there's that horse racing already ingrained in people in Kentucky and specifically Louisville that maybe it's more successful there, but I don't see it's, it doesn't seem to be that popular anywhere else, but this is like, it, I mean, it seems like this is really the lifeline for the Kentucky racing industry, more so than anything, is these these HHR machines. John, do you, do you have any insight on that? You know, the, the HHR machines are, are you know, very well marketed for that crowd. Um, you know, they wouldn't fly in New York. I don't think it would fly really in any other state or Commonwealth other than Kentucky because, you know, Kentucky is so steeped in, in that kind of history. Um, and, and Joe, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but like gamblers will, will bet. I mean, bettors bet. And whatever product you put out there, they're going to bet on. And, and case in point, you know, when COVID was was coming around and the, all the major sports were were closed down, um, there was such an influx of new money and new gamblers into our sport um, because it was the only it was the only literally the only game in town. But I, I I argue with you that if we had like cockroach races um, that were you know streamed online, people would bet on that also if, if there was a paramutual you know angle. So. I think just better's bet, and 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 that's you know that's kind of the uh, the, the machine uh, du jour um, in Kentucky because they you know because they do have the ability to to tap into you know the, the personal feelings of, of racing for for Kentuckians. 
Yeah, no, it's just interesting. Like that, that seems like a unique to that state that it's, it's just so so successful. Obviously we've seen the effect of slot machines in general on racing and the positive effect it's had. We, I mean, there's another discussion to be had about whether that's healthy for the game long-term to have so much of our purse money, you know, attached to basically a, a gambling endeavor that doesn't have anything to do with racing. At least this one has nominally a little bit to do with racing and, and gets people theoretically in the headspace to bet on the horses. Although, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen the data as to how much crossover there is, but I just wanted to mention there's a couple other big uh, purse boosts, uh, $250,000 boost to the, boost to the now one and a half million dollar Kentucky Oaks. Uh, so that's a big deal. You got the one now the La Troyenne is a million dollars. Churchill Downstakes is a million dollars. The Derby City Distaff is a million dollars. The Distaff Turf Mile is seven fifty. So the track's got now now has seven Grade One events, including the Turf Classic and the Stephen Foster, who are, that are also one million dollar purses. I guess the, the Stephen Foster is a Grade One now. I thought it was. I thought it had been downgraded to a Grade Two. I guess I, I, I thought it was too. I, I guess it's a Grade One. Joe, if it was if it was offered in New York, it would be a Grade Two <laughs> because everything in New York would be, downgraded it'd be, it'd be by, by the Graded Stakes Committee. And oh, guess what? None of nothing. <laughs> Again, uh, we're going to get out of soapbox. Nothing in Kentucky got downgraded. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> Can't wait for the uh, non-listed, non-black type Belmont stakes in like 2027. <laughs> that'll, that'll be a, a, a fun environment uh, to be in. But yeah, and I mean, listen, it's a great week of racing. Like, there's no denying that. And you know, there's there are people have called for this for a little while for the purse bump. But like John said, like, were you not going to run in the Kentucky Derby because it was three million versus five million? Like, I find that. Hard to believe, but, you know, people got what they wanted. So I, think, I guess there's going to be a, a little bit more to, to celebrate for the owners and the, the breeders of, uh, of horses that are going to run a Churchill Downset. Rail Talk is sponsored by The Green Group. The Green Group is the number one accounting firm in the horse business. If you watch the show or if you know Len, you know that. There's one reason, and it's no other CPA firm knows the horse industry like they do. Len Green, our man, owns over 200 horses. DJ Stables won over 2,500 races. The Green Group's got over 800 clients because they make the money and save them taxes. Special offer for listeners of Rail Talk. Len will, offer, will give you a complimentary and confidential half-hour consultation guarantees you'll get value hit them up 732-634-5100 and you know i you might have might have missed the 2023 tax breaks by now but 2024 listen you got to do tax preparation still there's a lot still to be figured out and len and the green group are the best at that in the horse business they have the guarantee that they'll find value and savings for you He'll donate to your favorite charity or whatever you want. If he doesn't, he's not worried. He's always found value before, and he knows he can do it with you. Shout out to Len and the Green Group. Hit him up. It's almost tax season. So we talked about the Derby purse, but that's like, I don't, like we were saying, I don't know how much that will really affect the, the cachet of the Derby, but there's a big potential change coming to the second leg of the Triple Crown, the Preakness. Now, for years, Pimlico has been left to rot, and Pimlico is, is a dump. But it's a it's it's an institution in Baltimore. So I always thought it would be a shame if the Pimlico if if the Preakness went away from Pimlico and went to Laurel. Now it looks like the opposite might happen. That the Stronic Group is going to get out of the horse racing business in Maryland, and then Laurel's going to be no more. And there's going to be a huge redevelopment project to Pimlico to make that the long term home for racing in the state of Maryland. Uh, it's a four hundred million dollar proposal from Governor Westmore. Um, and it's, it sounds like there's, there's going to be a lot of the same people who, uh, from the Maryland Stadium Authority 
who built the the Raven Stadium and who have overseen Camden Yards for the for all these years. Uh, two great stadiums by by all measures and all reports. Uh, so basically, they're gonna they're gonna close down Pimlico for the 20, 2026 and twenty twenty seven Preaknesses. That's gonna move that the race is gonna move to Laurel that year if this is all approved, and then after that, Laurel will be kaput and Pimlico will be modernized and rejuvenated and will be the long term hub for racing in Maryland. There's gonna they're gonna build a whole new training center as well. It sounds great, and honestly, I, I think this is a, a really positive development for Pimlico and for Baltimore in general. We'll see if it gets approved and if the wheels actually go in motion. But there's a lot to to dissect here because I think there's also a lot of there's going to be a lot of fallout from the Stronic Group getting rid of another track in their portfolio. Uh, so, John, just tell tell me broad view. What are you what are you looking at? Yeah, you know, Kelly, I think you did a great job of of giving a, a lot of salient points. Um, there's just a couple more that that, that I didn't realize until uh, you know I, I read the articles. Um, number one is that I didn't realize that the Maryland Horsemen and Breeders were receiving sixty million dollars in annual subsidies. Um, from the state's casinos. So basically, you know, every year the Maryland was, was, you know, basically giving $60 million to uh, whether it's purse increases and or um, breeding incentivizations um, to the industry. So in my estimation, I think what, what the state of Maryland thought was, well, instead of giving them $60 million in subsidies, why don't we put the $60 million towards an actual asset that that we that will own um, in in the sense of you know renovating and, and updating Pimlico Racetrack. Um, the second thing I didn't realize was that the state of Maryland has already pre-approved three hundred seventy-five million dollars in bonds um, that have been authorized for the racing industry. So again, Maryland had that kind of in their back pocket. I think pre-COVID even that that they had the right um, and the ability to actually issue three hundred seventy-five million dollars worth of bonds. Um, to to assist with construction um, and renovation of, of a of racing uh, project. Um, and, and the third thing I thought was really interesting, Joe, I've never, ever seen this before, um, where when an asset is traded, in this sense, Pimlico Racetrack, um, you normally think, okay, well, all of the intangibles that go along with Pimlico um, get put into that deal. Not so fast. First, um, you know, the Stronach Group, is holding on to the exclusive rights of the Preakness, which I thought was really interesting. So they sold everything except for basically the, that race. Um, and, and I've never seen it before. It's almost like if Mammoth was sold, but they were holding on to the rights of the Haskell um, or, or, you know, or Parks is sold and they were holding on to the rights of the Cotillion and the PA Derby. I've never seen it where it was um, portioned off and, and they're holding on to that asset, which, you know, if you, if you push forward, it, it could be Joe where, we're seeing after after the you know uh, Laurel is kaput, and depending on how Pimlico goes, we could see the Derby being a Churchill Downs, and then maybe the Preakness being in Florida at Gulfstream, because Stronach still owns Gulfstream and Santa Anita. What do you think about that? Having the Preakness at a different venue altogether, because technically First owns the Preakness. Yeah, I hope not because, like, yeah, you know, I, I say this to someone who's been to Baltimore and the Preakness multiple times and, and enjoys it, even though Pimlico is a dump right now. That it really there is a lot of pride. There's a lot of civic pride in Baltimore about the Preakness, and I think that's the only reason that a plan like this would have 
any kind of prayer of being successful, being approved and being successful because Baltimoreans, Baltimoreans, I don't know what you call them, but they really do care about having the Preakness in their in their city. So I really hope that that's not the case. And it honestly, it seems like past governors have just kind of ignored Baltimore. I think Larry Hogan was the governor before that. Um, he was a Republican. Westmore is a Democrat. Uh, and I think he's at least signaling an intent to revitalize Baltimore. And that's a big part of that is Pimlico. And I think, you know, the, the heretofore abandonment of Pimlico is kind of a symbol of the abandonment of huge swaths of Baltimore by the previous administration. And it's it was a great it's, it was a great American institution that was like left to rot because politicians didn't think it was worth saving. But I mean, who knows if the government can run it better than the Stronic Group? And I think in general, it's not great when racing founded companies get out of the game in any way. But that's going to happen regardless. Like Belinda Stronic clearly wants to minimize the company's involvement in racing over time. And like John's saying, only keep the real cash cows and the real brands that make them money. Um, I think the bigger issue is that in the case of places like Golden Gate, no one's interested in stepping up to take over. So they're just going to those those tracks are just going to disappear. In this case, at least for now, it seems like the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore are not only willing, but seem pretty enthusiastic to try to step up and fill that void. And I can hear it now in my fucking head like, oh, you think the government's going to do a better job right. <laughs> than, a, than a private business? But actually, yes, I do. I think considering the alternative is a company that like clearly doesn't want to have that much racing anymore as time goes by and Belinda takes over from Frank Stronic. And I, it's, I think that's evidenced by them willing to throw Laurel under the bus completely. Like it was just like a year or so ago that the idea was to redevelop Laurel and make that the racing hub for Maryland. And now it's like, Oh, well you're going to take Pimlico's obligations away from us. Sure. We'll get rid of Laurel too. And I, I guess that's, that's kind of where we are now, John. Yeah. It's just an era where, some states think of racing, I think, as more of a necessary evil that provides jobs than a robust industry that's worth investing time and money into. But I, I don't know. It's early, but I think this administration, the Westmore administration, at least is trying to make it work in Baltimore with the Preakness and Pimlico. So I, I think that's a positive sign overall. It, it is. And, and it, it goes back to what we were talking about, you know, years and years ago. Um, about certain racetracks just need to kind of fall off in order to invigorate and strengthen um, the industry. And, and it's a shame because there's a lot of history at Laurel and, and uh, you know, they were basically year round racing and it was a place to, to run in the wintertime up here in, on the East Coast. And, and not, not that I would say that, that there's a ton of people that are going to be uh, longing for the, you know, for, for a Monday at, at, at Laurel um, in February, but there, you know, there are some great races there and, and, and there've been some good memories there. Um, Joe, just to go back to what you were saying that the correct term for people who live in Baltimore are Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans? Baltimoreans. Yes. I, I looked it up. It, it was on Wikipedia and you know that they're always right. Baltimoreans. Okay. That sounds right. That's that's how that sounds very official. No, but I listen. I, I you know I, I I like Baltimore. Obviously, there's a, there's some sketchy areas, and it's kind of it's not what it was in, in its heyday. But the the harbor, the inner harbor, is really beautiful, and it's like it's it's a proud city with like a lot of a lot of great sports too. A lot of great sports legacy, and I think Pimlico and the Preakness is a huge part of that. So. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that th that this becomes the long term home, like they're saying, because, I, you know, also I, I love city racetracks. 
Like I just, that's one of the reasons that Aqueduct going away is, is a little bit of a bummer to me because that's our, that's our city racetrack. Belmont's a little bit more suburban. So we'll see what happens, but uh, I'm glad at least someone is stepping up from the government after Larry Hogan and previous administrations just left Pimlico to rot and turn into a national embarrassment. Rail Talk is sponsored by TaylorMade. TaylorMade obviously is at the top of the sales game. They're gearing up for another huge 2024 with their consignments that are pretty much perennially leading consignments at all of the major sales. Um, but also, you, you might want to go take a look at TaylorMade Stallions. I'm actually on the website right now. This this is emblematic of how good they are at marketing. Look, Go check out their virtual stallion brochure on the website right now. It is so cool and so intuitive. And you can just scroll with the arrows left to right. And you can see action shots of the horses they have. You can see the pedigrees. You can see all of their accomplishments. I'm just looking at, at Dr. Scheibel right now, who is the top of the 2024 roster along. With, obviously, not this time is, is the, top, the top in terms of stallion, in t- terms of stud fees. But we got Dr. Scheibel as well. Idol, Instagram, Instilled Regard, Nick's Go, Rowayton and Tacitus. So go check out their stallion website. It's a great, great resource. And yeah, people making breeding decisions for 2024. There's a lot of really, you know, I think value stallions right there and value stallion kind of has a negative connotation. But I think for me, it's like if I were, a you know, meat and potatoes breeder that had 10, 12, 15,000 to spend on a cover for the year, they got a lot of stallions that I would consider, I think, Instagram and Idol in particular. And I, I, I like instilled regard as well. I'm a turf guy. He was by Arch, grade one winner on the grass. So I, I would take a look at him as well. But yeah, go check out the website. They got a little bit for everybody. And uh, yeah, TaylorMade, not just sale, not just a sales agency, but also a bustling, growing stallion farm. And Joe, don't forget the, the recent news, the immediate news that early voting is coming to TaylorMade sales, uh, TaylorMade farm. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about the Preakness. There's a Preakness winner. That, uh, you know, stood for the first time uh, last year, got over 100 mares in fall, and now is coming over TaylorMade. So you talk about a value stallion, son of Gunrunner, grade one winner. There's another one. So we're thrilled to welcome back into the studio, but also in the studio for the first time. She's the race caller at Parks Racing. Jessica Paquette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to be on. I've really enjoyed some of the conversations you've been having since your show launched. Oh, thank you so much. And we've been enjoying listening to you in the booth. I'm so I'm so interested about these things when you become a race caller after having a handicapping background or just a horse lover background. Like how does being in the booth and calling races change your perspective, if it does at all, on, on horses and the sport? I watch races entirely differently than I did when I was just a handicapper. I think when we are handicapping or wagering, we tend to really focus on the horse that we pick. We're watching the trip that they work out. And now that I'm so accustomed to kind of watching the field in a really broad sense, I watch the entire race very differently. I also listen to race calls differently than I ever did. Now I can start, I can hear when another announcer makes a little hiccup or covers it really well. And I go, Oh, that's a good way to do that. I will try to file that away and use that next, you know, next time the hamster falls off the wheel for me too. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're handicapping a race in advance and you figure certain horses are going to go to the front. Certain horses are going to come from behind. Is that kind of predetermined in your mind as you know, when you're watching the race unfold or is it you're, you're calling it the way that you're seeing it and kind of painting a verbal picture for for the uh, for the audience 
So I don't think you should be anticipating as a race caller, but I do also act as the handicapper at parks in between races. I do paddock commentary. So essentially from like 12 o'clock every day, I just talk all day, nonstop. But going, so I have an idea of how I think the race is going to happen, but then you get like cheap maidens and who knows what they're going to do. They're going to do whatever they'd like to do. So there's no anticipation with something like that. The older hard knocking horses that run a little bit more to form, you can sort of expect they're going to be where you expect them to be. And if if they're not, then that makes you pay attention a little bit more, but you can't anticipate too much. You kind of should. And this is something I still work on, of course, um, is letting the race come to you. Yeah, no doubt. You got to you got to be able to adjust and, and think quickly on your feet. <clears throat> you know, you're a horse lover. You're a lifelong equestrian. I want, there were any specific experiences or specific horses that, you know, you had or you saw growing up that really hooked you and, you know, really set you on this lifelong path with the horses? So I was just a horse crazy kid and horses were like a lifetime and a world away from me. I grew up in Lowell, kind of a city. We didn't have a lot of money. I was not, I didn't have a pony growing up. (laughs) And in the late nineties, there was a horse on the Derby trail named Blazing Sword. Um, He was a nice two-year-old owned by a local developer, Gil Campbell. And he got a lot of coverage in the Lowell Sun, our local newspaper. This is the importance of newspapers, people. (laughs) And getting these newspapers, you know, to my, to my house and seeing a horse from, you know, that it was connected to where I was from, I was immediately hooked. And then it was from there, I got involved with Kids to the Cup, which was an organization in the late 90s, early 2000s designed to bring young people into the sport. And it brought a lot of us who were not born into the sport. Uh, the stork did not drop us off in the right spot. And Trudy McCaffrey and John DeSantis and Kate and Bradar, they brought us to the Breeders' Cup and the Triple Crown and kind of showed us the very best of the sport. And a testament to their vision, probably 70% of us are working in the industry still. Wow, that's, that's a great feeder program. Mm-hmm. That, that's amazing. It's amazing. So it was, it was life-changing for so many of us who had no connection to the sport any other, in any other way. And, and you also had an opportunity by being at parks, not only calling, you know, claiming races and allowance races, but also a couple of, of graded stake races and even the grade one. Tell me, you know, I, I know you did an interview and you said it's just another race. But it, it can't be just another race. It's got to be exciting for you to, to be able to call a, a grade one of that caliber. So it didn't wind up just being a race. I think you want to go into those kind of races, not really psyching yourself up that they are any different because the mechanics of it are the same. But it is a huge thrill to get to call such nice horses. And I'll admit, after the cotillion, I turned the microphone off. And there was a moment where it was a, it was a big moment. And I was like, oh, my, are my knees going to buckle? I still have another grade one after this. Um, and the thing at Parks, and I'm very fond of the hard knocking claiming horses that we mostly get and that I get to call. Those are my favorite kind of horses. But every once in a while, you get to see a really nice horse at the start of their career. Uh, for me, there's an undefeated filly, Etha's Magic, four for four. And it's the first time I've gotten to call one that might be really good from day one. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like finding a new prospect. Like it's just like a a better or an owner. I think it must be just as exciting, if not more. What's your impression of parks? Cause I went there for the first time this past summer and you know, it was a Monday. There weren't that many people there, but it was a nice track. It was a cool, like pretty chill vibe. Like, I don't know how much time you spent there before you started calling races, but what's been your impression of it? I had really only been there for Pennsylvania Derby days prior. I had gone down to assist with the broadcast for a couple of PA derbies. And I I mean, it's becoming home. I'm becoming very fond of it. They're my people now. I spent so much time at Suffolk Down. So these small urban racetracks are really where my heart is. And uh, little by little, Parks is becoming my my little corner of the universe. Yeah, nice. Yep. 
And, and, you know, guys, I don't know if you realize it, but, but we were leading owners at, at Pennsylvania when it, back when it was uh, Keystone racetrack. I mean, that's how long ago it was. And, and I walked You're old as hell, John. I know, I know that's <laughs> that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even have, I didn't even have gray hair, let alone hair. Um, and, uh, you know, you walk through and now they have parks, I think is the only racetrack in the country that actually has its own hall of fame, um, on ground, on the it's, grounds, which is really, really cool. Because Go ahead. Canterbury does too. Oh, Canterbury. Oh, sorry. Canterbury does too. Wow. All right. That's encyclopedic. That's, that's, that's good knowledge. That's really good knowledge. Um, <laughs> but in, in walking through the, the hall of fame, you know, you, you like, I see Tony black as a writer and Walter Reese and John service who, who trained for us. But obviously Keith Jones is in there as, as the voice of, you know, parks and, and Keystone racetrack for all those years. Did you ever listen to any of his race calls or, 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 or people expecting you to have a race call rhythm like Keith or, or like how, how has he influenced your, your career, if at all? Uh, Keith hasn't influenced my career at all. I've not really heard from him at all since I started this adventure. But of course, I listen to his race calls. I've been a racing fan for you know, over 20 years. And there was one kind of funny moment. And, you know, Philly sports fans are tough. They are. They are tough. I was leaving the racetrack one day and one of the railbirds was like, kid, Keith Jones used to do it like this. And I looked at him. I said, do I look like Keith Jones? <laughs> That's great. Girl. <laughs> hey, way to go. That's great. Uh, well, I mean, it's interesting. You, you, you know, you bring up you bring up the criticism from the Philly sports fans like you're pretty active on social media. And there's been some criticism of you. And I think a lot of it has been pretty sexist. Just my opinion. Like, you how do you deal with that? what you don't say? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I just want to I didn't want I didn't want to go out on a limb there. Um, but just, you know, first of all, how do you deal with that? And secondly, that's been a problem, I think, in racing for a long time. Is that kind of sexism and misogyny? Like, do you think it's getting any better or worse or where do you think we're at? I think it's important to just keep pushing through and to not really engage with the very ugly stuff because that is coming from just an ugly place. And I, I was very green when I started. I had called like 50 quarter horse races. So mm -hmm. there was a steep learning curve. I understand that I wasn't that sharp out of the gate. And some of the you know constructive criticism from my friends and my peers was very helpful. Even some of the harsher ones were like they were, you know, I got to have things to work on each week. But, you know, the... DMs and the implications of like salacious things I did to get this job. My none of my peers get the they they don't get those sort of messaging and that sort of that sort of vitriol on a regular basis. And even still, I mean, I've been doing this for 14 months and there are still some folks on Twitter who are real committed to like spending a good portion of their day trying to make me feel bad. And I mean, it's you're lying if you say you don't internalize it and it isn't hurtful for sure. But at a certain point, you also have to consider the source. Jessica, I have to thank you as as, as the father of two daughters um, and my wife, who was that, you know, crazy horse girl growing up. Um, you know, you're a role model to them. And and the fact that that you can you continue to, to persevere and push through in a male dominated sport, um, it, it really is a wonderful thing. So I hope that you also hear some good things. Um, you know, from from your peers and also from your fans as well, because um, you're breaking new ground every single time you call a race. And, and that's got to feel good for you as a professional, right? It means the world. And that that isn't lost on me at all. And that is a role that I do take very seriously. For me, the parts that make it 
so worth it because there are parts that are hard and there are parts that are, you know, there are days that are frustrating and there are moments um, where some of the ugliness is overwhelming. And then I get a message from a younger girl being like, you know, you are inspiring me to push forward or to do this or to branch out in this part of the industry. And that's the stuff that makes it worth it. This industry is better when we have more voices and more people at the table. And I mean, I hope in 10 years, there are a bunch of young girls coming to take the jobs of all of these grouchy old announcers. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you on that one. Um, but yeah, no, the, on, in that vein, like, you know, you have, I think you have a broader view of the sport than, than a lot of people because of your position as a handicapper, as a, as a race caller, like just that I want a general comment about the overall health of the industry. And, and do you think that we're doing enough to recruit young people and young women and people of color to join the industry? Because it seems like that's been an everlasting struggle for us. We can never do too much. I, I think we need to continue to find new innovative ways to make the sport appealing to younger people. I mean, I'm not the commissioner. I don't have all of the ideas here or all of the answers, but I think you know the more we can appeal to young people and also to show that we are our biggest advocates and that we are the ones that are trying to make the sport better and safer. Um, we are kind of fighting a public perception battle at this moment and rightfully so. We did kind of did that to ourselves, but you know, there's always that complaint that the media doesn't show enough positive stories. And that has to be on us. We have to be the ones that are telling those good stories. Yep. No, no question about it. it. Jessica, last question for me is, you know, you're making such an impact on, on racing in Pennsylvania. In your heart of hearts, when, when, you know, when you wake up in the morning, are you thinking about what the next step is? Are you hoping that, that maybe Larry Colmas comes up with laryngitis and you can jump in and, and do the Breeders' <laughs> Cup one day? Or what, 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 what is your, your, your future aspirations where a couple of years from now we're going to be like, she told us that on the podcast that she wanted to be fill in the blank? So Pennsylvania has been uh, and the team at Parks has been very loyal to me. So I am at this point, you know, not looking for the next mountain. I'm not saying that there I won't climb another mountain at some point. And I think all of us, you know, professionally, we have these big, big dreams. That's why we do this. Of course, I would love to call the Breeders' Cup. I also maybe, you know, as I'm a little bit older and my back gets a little creakier, I'd like to spend some more time out West in California. So Del Mar looks nice too. You know, there, there are, you know, you never know where it's going to take you. Um, for me, horses in the sport have brought me to places I never thought was possible. When I was a kid, I never thought I'd be an announcer. I didn't see women be announcers. That wasn't a thing. I thought maybe I'd be a handicapper or a journalist or whatever. So, you know, this has already kind of surpassed whatever I could have imagined. So we'll see what's next. You could be commissioner. Just put up a put up a Twitter poll and if people vote you in, you're you're commissioner now. No, That's how it works. You know, in addition to calling races, you also have a show in Pennsylvania, a local show. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So it's called On the Rail. So royalty checks are in the mail, I promise. Uh, like, if you want to be the third host over here, you, there's an easier way to do that. But no, no, sorry. Go ahead. Tell us about it. Uh, so Chris Griffin, the former parks announcer and the aqueduct announcer, um, he works for the PTHA now. So it's a collaborative effort between parks and the PTHA. And we're trying to show great stories of people that are at parks, promote the horses, the horsemen and women. Um, I do a weekly segment called War Horse Wednesday, where I focus on one of those hard knocking old claimers. So we get to do that on the show and things like that, that I'm trying to show the mainstream audience in Philadelphia, again, some of the best sports fans in the country, that this is right in their backyard. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we need that kind of outreach. Uh, you're you're a great advocate for the sport, for young women in the sport. We appreciate you breaking ground and we appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with us. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks to Jessica Paquette for stopping by on Rail Talk. Love talking to her. You know, would love to have her back on the show and shout out to her for what she's doing. Trailblazing in the industry. You know who else is trailblazing in the industry? A little show called Rail Talk. We must have an expanded budget by now because we have our first special correspondent who's going to introduce a new game to us. We're going to play pretty regularly. Skip Anderson, friend of the show. Welcome as the first correspondent for Rail Talk. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, John. How are you guys today? Doing great. Doing Always good, good to see excited. you. So with this, this this game is called is called Tackle or Trade. Explain to the audience how it's going to work, and then we'll play. All right, sounds good. Well, Tackle and Trade is going to be an opportunity for us to learn what's going on in Joe and John's heads. So I'm going to pose two questions to you guys. What I'll do is we'll flip a coin. The winner gets to go first, and that person. I will ask a question. They can either tackle that question or they can trade it to their partner, but their partner has to answer it. And then if they trade it, the first person has to tackle the second question. Yeah. So like, we don't know what the questions are ahead of time. So once Skip asked me the first question, if it's too difficult, I'll pass it to John, but then that might be tricky because the second one might be even more revealing and getting into our heads can be a little bit dangerous. So we're going to see how this goes. I'm going to, I'm going to call the coin. Uh, I'm going to call heads and, and skip. You can flip, flip, skip. <laughs> Winner is tails. Okay. So John Ooh. gets to go first. All right. All right, John, our first question in tackle and trade is do your best impersonation of somebody famous. Ooh. All right. Um, I'll, I'll take you that. go to impressions, John. I've never I'm heard you do an impression before. No, never. I usually, I can do. No, impressions, I so. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do my impression of my famous co-host, Joe Bianca. <laughs> Someone actually famous, John, actually I mean, famous. I can, do, I can do a good Joe Bianca. You ready? Okay. All right. Let's hear it. Three, two, one. Welcome to our famous podcast. It's the inaugural show of Rail Talk 2024. I'm Joe Bianca, and I love to be in Brooklyn, talk about New York sports and Naira racing. I am so stoked to introduce my co-host, Jonathan Green. John, take it away. <laughs> it's like someone who just like met me for like oh, it was last week or so i like uh new york sports <laughs> uh, brooklyn come on that was off the top of my head give me a break here no, you good, do another one? I, can, I can do another one i'll do i'll do bill finley impersonation oh boy oh, okay. oh boy joe you're an idiot <laughs> That's my Bill Finley impression. Oh man, that's that, that's a that's an Eclipse Award winning impression right there, John. <laughs> Very good. Wow, wow. Very impressive. All right, all right. All right. Good question. I guess, yeah. I guess it's my turn. All right, Joe. Question number two: When flying commercially, are you a window seat or an aisle seat type of person, and why? First of all, like I try not to fly commercial anymore these days because I know a guy with a private jet. So anytime I'm not on the G5 these days, it's a little bit of a disappointment built in. But I would I like I mean, to me, it depends on how long the flight is. 
Like if it's a long flight and I know I'm going to have to get up and go to the bathroom multiple times because in general, I have a small bladder. And as I get older, I have to pee a lot more. If it's a long flight, I like the aisle because I like that freedom to be able to walk back and forth. If it's a short flight, eh, I, I might go for the window seat. But yeah, it's de- definitely not the window and definitely not commercial if I have the choice. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> How about you, Skip? I'm always an aisle seat guy. Always an aisle yep. seat. And yep. if we're going to talk impersonations, why don't I share one? Oh, bring it. Ooh, bonus. <laughs> This is Kermit T. Frog reporting live from Fargo, North Dakota as a correspondent with Rail Talk. And it's really a pleasure being in the presence of Joe and John. And if you uh, really uh, think this podcast is great, give us a like and a follow on all the social media platforms. That's fucking tremendous. (laughs) Tremendous. Can we clip that and like just put that as like a banner ad on our YouTube page or something? Like there's the intro ad. That's excellent impression beat beat john's impression by a mile but let's keep going skip what other questions you got for us all right if you have to send one emoji to your significant other this very moment what emoji are you sending and why first of all we have to explain to john what an emoji is it's it's, it's a tiny little animated face thing that you know can express joy or laughter or sadness or something sexual, or since we're talking significant others, John, what would be your your emoji of choice to send to Michelle? So, so you're 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 trading, not tackling. Yes. Okay. I, I think it would have to be. You know, we've been doing this podcast now for going on three hours today, so it's going to be. <laughs> that's that's the emoji. It's like really. No, we've had we've had some te- technical difficulties along the way, but all right. What skip? What's the second question? All right, the second question is, who is your celebrity lookalike? Oh, damn, that's a tricky one. I mean, there's no celebrity that could measure up to this, but I, I don't know. Like, there there was a guy. I, first of all, back in the day, I had one. He was in the NBA back because I had like a I had a. A zero haircut or it was just all the, all shaved down people said i looked like mike bibby so if you can like imagine me with like a slightly shorter beard and a bald head i kind of looked a little bit like mike bibby but there was like a he was there, there was an actor of some sort i'd have to look it up that people say i look like john do you anybody that comes to mind people say that that i look like jimmy kimmel although i don't necessarily see that maybe patty and can put a, a picture of, of Jimmy Kimmel up. I, I don't see it, but really? some people have said that that I'm Jimmy Kimmel. We've said this before. I think like th- that John looks like the love child of Jimmy Kimmel and John Oliver. And we, if we can put both of those guys up, <laughs> can we morph them together? <laughs> yes. I don't know if we have that technology. We might have spent all the budget money on Skip. <laughs> what was the last movie you saw in the theater, and how would you review it? I'll take this one. And so it was, and I don't watch movies all that often in the theater, at least, or in general. I saw the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie and it was excellent. I highly recommend it to everybody. It should win all the Oscars for best picture. And it's not even nominated, but I was kind of like Megan and I have been trying to get Taylor Swift tickets forever. And we keep getting shut out like most of the country. So it was great, but it was also like, oh, this would have been so cool to see in person, but still, still highly recommend. That's, that's the one for me. So 
What, what you got? What you got for John? What is your greatest attribute, and what is your biggest shortcoming? Wow. <laughs> so I'm glad I I'm glad I tackled that one. Wow. Well, shortcoming is definitely my height. Um, no question about that. Um, yep. My greatest attribute has got to be my my ability to roll with the punches and and just be flexible and and try to take a positive outlook on on life. I think I think that that's something I've developed over the years. I was definitely not like that earlier on, but I would like to think that that's my greatest attribute these days. Johnny Blue Skies, I like that. Is you, you do you are you are a light of my life as as a, as is Len. I don't know if that's Len in the background, but if it is, well, no, that, that was we have we have another correspondence that keeps pacing back and forth because I'm in I'm in the kitchen and, and he's trying to get his morning coffee. Um, so that's that's our, right. one of our sponsors, Len Green. Yes, <laughs> that that's our our cue to start wrapping things up. All right, Skip. Well, thanks for coming on. You look sharp as always. You're gonna you're gonna make us step it up in the style department. I think. Um, tell the, tell the viewers and the listeners how they can get in on the fun and ask questions of me and John. All right. If you want to get in on tackle and trade, we would love to hear from you. You can submit some questions to me, skip Anderson at Baba acres on X. Send us those questions, whatever you want to ask John or Joe, we'll get them in the pipeline to play tackle and trade and, uh, just listen in and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, my man. It's like a special correspondent, Skip Anderson. Happy New Year, bud. Good to see you. See you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you, Joe. This is Skip Anderson, Rail Talk Media. I need to go see a man about a horse. All right, so that's going to do it for the first episode of 2024 for Rail Talk. Thank you to John Green, as always, my co-host. Thank you to our special correspondent, Skip Anderson. Excited to bring you back on and play more Tackle and Trade. Thanks to Jessica Paquette for stopping by. Thanks to our producer, Patty Wolf, and our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Aliyah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. Thanks to you for watching. We'll see you back here next week on Rail Talk.